Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. I want to welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea. Today we're going to be talking about a, a topic and a group of men who uh, we may not know as well as perhaps we ought to, and we certainly don't know as well today as Americans in previous days knew, and that is the Great Triumvirate. Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, and John C. Calhoun. All of them careers, important public careers during the 19th century. And we want to talk today about who they were, what they thought about America, the political fights and controversies they had, and their lasting legacy for the life of our country. And I'll be joined in that conversation today by an old friend of Ashbrook, not so old, <laughs> long acquainted with Ashbrook, <laughs> Professor Jason Stevens. Jason is professor of political science at Ashland University and co-director of the Ashbrook Scholar Program. Jason earned his BA from Ashland University. Uh, I, I don't know, were you a student when I was a teacher? I was. Oh, boy. I okay. Was. So, so I, you've I must that have been, from your memory. Yeah, I must have been extremely <laughs> young at the time. <laughs> Let's just say that and be nice. He's a proud graduate of the Ashbrook Scholar Program and earned his MA and PhD from the Institute of Philosophic Studies at the University of Dallas. And so, since joining Ashland in 2011, so now over 10 years, Jason has taught in our Master of Arts in American History and Government program and our Teaching American History programs and teaches lots of very good, wonderful undergraduate classes in U.S. Constitution, in American political history and thought, on Abraham Lincoln, and William Shakespeare. So he's a bit of a Renaissance man, but firmly rooted in the American political tradition. And appropriate for this conversation, he is the editor of Ashbrook's Core Documents volume, Causes of the Civil War, which is now available on teachingamericanhistory.org, TAH.org, a wonderful volume. Jason, thanks for editing that volume for us, and thanks for joining us today. Of course, happy to be here. The Great Triumvirate. Yes. Sounds like a big fancy name. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Who is the Great Triumvirate? Right. So, uh, as you, you mentioned in your, your introductory remarks, the Great Triumvirate, uh, it is Henry Clay of Kentucky. It is Daniel Webster of Massachusetts. And it is John C. Calhoun of South Carolina. Okay. So, what years are we talking about with these three men? This is the first generation after the American founding. So all three men are born during the American Revolution. Okay. They get their start with the nation. Henry Clay, born in 1777. Webster and uh, Calhoun, born 1782. And they come of age in the young and growing nation. Uh, they get their start in... Congress in the 12th, 13th Congress, right around uh, 1812, 1813. Okay. And they dominate the political landscape up through their deaths. Clay dies in 1852, uh, as does Webster. Uh, Calhoun had died in, in 1850. So for the better part of a century, hmm. these guys are front and center in the heart of, of American politics. 
So as you say, they're really the generation that succeeds people yeah. like Washington, Jefferson, and Madison. They are the, the heirs of the founders. They are the next generation of, of Americans after the founding generation. Interesting. And what's interesting to me is we may have heard these names now that you lay mm. them out, Henry Clay, someone mm. like that, yeah. but we don't know much about them. I think a lot of our listeners mm-hmm. don't know a lot about them and probably are interested to know, you know, why are you devoting a podcast episode to them? Why should we study them? What's their importance in your mind to American history and government? That's a great question. So if any of your listeners have ever been up here to the Ashbrook Center, they may notice, well, they may notice many things, but one thing that might catch their eye is uh, along the back wall where we have our, our Ashbrook classroom. So all the students, all the Ashbrook scholars, they see all of the presidents of the United States. Their pictures are framed there along the back wall. Um, and I think it's good for them to see that. But when we end up talking about the great triumvirate in class, the students may ask the very same question. Who are these guys? Mm-hmm. Why are they important? Why do they matter? I don't see them up there. Right? right. They were never president. Um, all three of them aspired to become president. All three failed. But what I tell our, what I tell our scholars is, you know, notice this period in American history, right, from roughly... Uh, you know, the, the end of the Jacksonian era. So look at, you know, Martin Van Buren up through James Buchanan. Who are these guys? Martin Van Buren, Harrison, Tyler, Taylor, Polk, Pierce, Fillmore. Who the heck is Millard Fillmore? Right. <laughs> it's, it's during that time in American history, that, that antebellum period and the, right, the generation leading up to the Civil War, that statesmanship, American statesmanship, it's not seen in the presidency. It's seen in the halls uh, of Congress. It's seen in the Senate. It's in the House of Representatives. And that is where Clay and Calhoun and Webster were at that time. Fascinating. So if you want to understand American statesmanship in the 19th century, and more broadly, what it means to be a statesman in America, as you say, we often think of it as only for presidents. And you're making the case here that, in fact, these legislators, these members of Congress, Mm. these senators Mm. should be thought of in some ways and were in their own day thought of as statesmen. Absolutely. All right, let's talk about them. Sure. Their historical background. Um, Sometimes statesmen are forged in the fire of crisis. Mm. What were the major crises that faced these three Mm. during their public life? Yeah, that is that is certainly true for uh, for the great for the great triumvirate. Um, as I said, they all got their start during the American Revolution. So Clay's first memory is right, a band of British soldiers desecrating the grave of his, of his father and, and his grandfather. Wow. Um, all three uh, end up in Washington, D.C., in the halls of Congress. They come together for the first time uh, in 1813. Okay. That sounds like the War of 1812. Um, yes, that's the that's the first crisis. That's okay. the first crisis that the three of them are are involved in. Uh, Clay and Calhoun, uh, right? They were part of the War Hawks faction, right? So they were they were very adamant about war with with England. Uh, Daniel Webster at the time, right? Still holding on to uh, his his federalism, uh, his Federalist uh, title in in that party. Uh, he was against the war. So right right from the start. Right, they're disagreeing with each other. Uh-huh. That's not always, that won't always be the case. Don't so find things the, to, to agree on. 
but those will be few and far between. You've got the Westerner, Clay, because yep. in that in those days, Kentucky's the West. That's right. Yeah. You've got the Southerner, Calhoun, mm-hmm. saying, let's go to war with Britain. You've got the New Englander, mm-hmm. Webster, like a lot of New Englanders, saying, let's not go to war right. with, with Britain. Yeah. We're a young and infant nation that can only end badly for us. How does it... What's their role in the War of 1812? Yeah, that's good. Uh, so they're all there in in the House of Representatives, right? So they are right having debates, deliberations uh, regarding the progress of you know funding the arms in the field because it's up to Congress to provide the funds. Right. Um, you know, Webster spoke out against the war. He thought it was unjust, but he uh, you know would would continually vote for provisions for the for the army for the uh, for the troops. Um, Clay ends up being part of the delegation, uh, to, uh, settle, uh, to, to, to come up with a peace agreement. Oh, he's really? part of the, right. he's part of the, um, the council that goes to, uh, to Europe, uh, representing the United States. Uh, he and, and John Quincy Adams, uh, go and the result is the, the Treaty of, of Trent, which, or Ghent, excuse me, which ends up, you know, bringing, uh, uh an end to the, the hostilities. Uh, Americans didn't get everything they want, but they thought it was an honorable peace. Mm-hmm. And Clay becomes a, a, a superstar uh-huh. because of that. Okay. Mm-hmm. What, you know, when these, they're, they're relatively young, as you say, they're in their 30s or I guess 40s yeah. um, at this time, 30s. What are they like as personalities? What kind of human beings <laughs> right. is is a Henry yeah. Clay, a John C. Calhoun, a Daniel Webster? Yeah. Are they similar or really different personalities? Yeah, yeah they're, they're very different personalities. Uh, they're not friends. In many cases, they don't like each other personally, but they respect each other. Okay. They're not friends, they're rivals. They're political mm. rivals. Uh, Henry Clay actually had filled um, two uh, seats in, in the Senate at one time and then another before coming to the U.S. House of Representatives. And funny enough, the first time he fills a, he's elected to fill an open U.S. Senate seat, he's actually 29 years old. He's four months short oh, he, of the, the required constitutional says you have to be 30, right? requirement. <laughs> Nobody noticed. Nobody took any notice. So he gets his start in the Senate, um, but then quickly makes his way to the more popular House, which he always liked, I think, better. Um, and for Clay, when he first comes into the House of Representatives, he's elected Speaker. That had never happened before or since. Wow. Where a first-term congressman is elected Speaker of the House. And Clay's real accomplishment in the House was to turn the, the Speakership um, right into a, a powerful political tool. Up to that time, it was seen merely as an office that would oversee the work of the House. I but see. Clay turned it into something that could not just oversee, but guide the work of the House and had real political, political power behind it. Clay was a man who um, was hard to get along with. When he and John Quincy Adams uh, were... Uh, were part of the negotiations of, of ending the War of 1812. They rubbed each other the wrong way all the time. Now, granted, you know, Adams had his own. Right. Not, he was not famously easy to get <laughs> no, along with. No, no, no. Seems like none of the Adamses ever were. That's right. He always, you know, either unwilling or unable to sort of get along with others. That was that was Henry Clay as well. He, he rubbed people the wrong way. Strange enough, the more time you spend, um, you know, with Henry Clay studying him, the more... You come to admire sort of his his political prudence and his statesmanship, but the more also you sort of say like this this yeah I can't kind of see this guy's kind of a rotten human being in some ways. Really? Okay. Yeah, you know Lincoln called him his beau ideal of a statesman, um, 
But, you know, he, he spent a lot of time uh, uh, gambling, philandering. Uh, oh. he, uh, yeah, he, um, uh, you know, he, he would rub people the wrong way. Uh, but he was an he was an astute politician. He was he was a man of of, of great political prudence, uh, in, an indomitable will, uh, and great eloquence as well. Um, you know, was was well known for 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 his eloquence in, in delivering a speech. And so, yeah, so, please. so how does that Kentucky man, that yeah. personality, which I might associate with a kind of backwoods or more frontier sort of place, yeah. how does that personality compare with? Uh, what you might think of as a more staid, upright New Englander, Daniel Webster. Like a Daniel Webster. Right, right. You know, Daniel Webster had his own own faults as well. Uh, Webster, for him, um, when looking when looking at, at his life, uh, yes, he was a politician. He was there with Clay and Calhoun in the House, and then, then later the Senate uh, in, in 1830, starting in 1832, when the three of them get together in the Senate for the first time. Uh, you know Webster, right? He's a he's a uh, an affable fellow. He's easy he's easier to get along with than Henry Clay. He likes to fish every Saturday, for uh, for instance. He likes to, to get away from the the bustle of of the city of uh, of of Washington. Um, for Webster, he was known for um, being able to give a an eloquent speech for his oratory, for his rhetoric. Ah, so okay. he, he, like the other members of the great triumvirate, he's a lawyer. Um, he spends a lot of time defending cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. He delivers, I think he's uh, appears before the Supreme Court in 168 cases. Wow. And in, many, and in many of those cases, I mean, these are what will become very prominent, well-known Supreme Court cases. So Dartmouth College versus Woodward, um, McCulloch v. Maryland, 1819. Wow. Big famous case. Uh, having to do with the, yeah, the National Bank and Gibbons v. Ogden in uh, 1824, I think, having to do with the, the wow. Commerce Clause. yeah. So he's there, you know, making his case before the, the Supreme Court. Um, and it's, it's his ability to, to deliver a great speech. That's always the thing I've loved about him. So, uh, you, you really should read some of his, his addresses, um, before Congress, the second reply to, to Hain, for instance, or he would give speeches commemorating significant events in American history. Right? So he gave a great speech on the 50th anniversary of the Battle of Bunker Hill. Uh-huh. The 200th anniversary of the landing of the Pilgrims. So he is sort of, as you say, the scholar, one of the scholars of the group. Yeah. The orator, one of the orators of the group, the historian of the group. John C. Calhoun. What's he like as a person? Yeah, he's all. Calhoun is also more of a scholar, I think, than a than a politician in uh-huh. many ways. Um, he's from South Carolina. He's from South Carolina. Um, you know, he has he serves as Secretary of War under Monroe, uh, serves as Vice President under uh, both John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson. Uh, he's from he's from the South. Um, he also is you know sort of an irascible fellow. He. Uh, you know, has his own, um, you know, his own proclivities. Uh, he was easier, though, to get, even Calhoun was easier to get along with than Henry Clay, which was something that surprised me in, in studying, in studying uh-huh. Calhoun. Just because you see him, and he, he just looks scary, he looks intimidating. Have you ever seen those old black and white yeah, pictures? He exactly. looks very stern. Yes, actually, yeah, whereas, you know, Clay, you know, is, is much more slender and, you know, looks less intimidating, but apparently, you know, Clay always was, was a bit arrogant. Um, Calhoun... Uh, right, he possessed many political gifts. Um, the interesting thing about Calhoun is 
right? His, his politics undergo a, a drastic change during the course of, of his career, hmm. right? So early on, uh, it might surprise right, some folks to, to realize that he is, he's a very strong nationalist, right? So he is aligned with Henry Clay, right, in the Warhawk faction against Great Britain in the War of 1812. Uh, but he also supported early in his career many uh, planks of Clay's American system. So he originally is in favor of a, of a tariff, of a national bank, of internal improvements, of those things that would strengthen the national power of the, the federal government. All right. Um, but that begins to change, especially during the course of the administration of, of Andrew Jackson. Over the course of the Jackson administration, Calhoun will become a fierce states' rights advocate. Wow, big change. A big change from his earlier sort of, you know, nationalism that he yeah. had earlier in his career. So they confront this first crisis, the War of 1812. Mm -hmm. We know it ends with the Treaty of Ghent, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, and it's seen largely uh, as a success. Mm -hmm. At least the, the beginning of the wars doesn't go so well. Washington is burned, <laughs> for example. Right. <laughs> Dolly Madison saves the portrait of yes, George yes, Washington, yes. and but lot, the capital is in flames. Mm -hmm. But by the end of it, and Jackson's victory at the Battle of New Orleans, mm -hmm. it looks kind of like the Americans have at least pulled out a draw, mm -hmm. if not a victory. You've got these three men in Congress arguing about, and in the end, in many ways, supporting this war. The next big crisis the country faces, though, mm. is not about external relations, mm. about war. Mm. It's about internal relations, the issue of slavery, mm. which has been a part of the fabric of American society since before the country becomes a country, right. when it's a colony of Britain, right? We inherit this problem, this deep problem of slavery, mm. which seems to only get deeper mm. and worse over the course of the founding, and especially after the founding in the early 19th century. We get to the crisis over the admission of Missouri as a state in 1820. What's the great triumvirate's role in the Missouri Compromise of 1820? Yeah, good question. So coming out of the end of the War of 1812, America seems to be united. Mm -hmm. The Union seems to be stronger than ever before, and yet it's almost immediately challenged Right, in 18, with the, the Missouri crisis that begins really in 1819, but culminates in, in 1820. The role of the Great Triumvirate there. Um, Henry Clay is really the indispensable man. Remind us of the crisis, case. the issue yeah. that the problem that they're facing. Yeah, the crisis is this. So uh, in 1803, uh, the United States... Jefferson's president purchases right the Louisiana territory right. from France right so now we have territory in the United States the question becomes what's going to be the status of slavery there that question went unanswered until 1820 when Missouri right this new state right wanting to come into the union as a state out of the territory of Louisiana uh, says, you know, to the U.S. Congress, hey, we're here, we've got a constitution, it's pro-slavery, can we come into the Union? That sets off alarm bells for everybody north and south because it would upset the delicate balance in the Senate mm. between slave and free states, um, thereby giving the slave power a greater, uh, a, a greater um, another vote in the U.S. Senate and, and representatives in the, in the House, therefore likely to have more pro-slavery legislation coming out of, out of the, the U.S. Congress. So the southern states, they rally behind Missouri, demanding that 
she be entered into the Union as a new state. The northern states are just as equally adamant about keeping Missouri out with her pro-slavery constitution. Mm, okay. So this actually threatens to split the Union. Civil war is openly talked about and threatened. Way back in 1820. Back in 1820, some southern states are claiming, you know, we will leave the Union. We will secede if Missouri doesn't become the next new state with her her pro-slavery constitution. Now enter Henry Clay in the U.S. Congress. Clay orchestrates a compromise. Uh, Lincoln, later we'll call Lincoln, always the man for a crisis. Mm. This was a crisis. Uh, so we needed the great compromiser. So Henry Clay, the great compromiser, he steps forth and he helps to, uh, to orchestrate um, what will become known as the, right, the Missouri Compromise, the Compromise of 1820. Missouri will come in as a slave state, but at the same time, Maine will come in as a free state. We'll keep that balance, that okay. delicate balance in the, uh, in, the, um, in the Senate. And at the same time, for the rest of the Louisiana Purchase, uh, we're going to draw an imaginary line at the 3630 parallel. Any states that come in north of that line, which is the vast majority of that territory, any states that come in north of that line must come in as free states. Any states that come in south of that line may come in with slavery. So it resolved the Missouri issue, but more importantly, it decided the question of slavery in all the territory belonging to the United States at that time in 1820. Both sides can agree to something, both sides give up something, and the nation can breathe a sigh of relief that civil war has been avoided at least for the time being. Did uh, Webster and Calhoun support the compromise? Uh, they did. They did. Um, which is a little surprising coming from Calhoun, especially knowing what he has to think about slavery, which is something I, I hope we also... Well, we let's also talk about talk that right about. now. Why yeah. does Henry Clay mm -hmm. want to propose a compromise mm -hmm. where the country is half... where the states coming in mm -hmm. are half slave and half free, mm -hmm. but the territory above the line is automatically free? Yeah. It seems to me that that favors freedom because the territory south of the line mm -hmm. might be free or might be slave. Right. Yeah, we don't know what Daniel what Daniel Webster, we don't know exactly what he thought of that line itself, but we, we do know that he, he favored the Missouri Compromise simply because, right, it resolved the slavery question, just as you said, right, in, in the favor of freedom. John, so Webster, a Massachusetts man, yes. is anti-slavery yes. and wants mm -hmm. to have the Western territories be as free of slavery as possible. Yes, exactly. What about John C. Calhoun? Yeah. Calhoun uh, supported the Compromise because again, that's Calhoun in sort of his early days in favor of right, you know, nationalism. Right, he thought that that was a way to, again, unite the nation, and we can move on and start talking about other topics that are relevant to the whole union. Okay. Um, what about Henry Clay? He put the compromise forward. What's Clay's view of slavery? Clay, as Lincoln points out in his his eulogy of Clay, um, Clay, Lincoln says, loved his country partly because it was his own but mostly because it was a free country. But then Lincoln immediately follows that up and says, and yet Henry Clay was the owner of slaves. Henry Clay was the owner of slaves since he was you know, just a few years old. He inherited them from his father hmm. and he had slaves for his entire life. Uh, he had a 
plantation in Kentucky, in Lexington, Kentucky, which strangely enough, right, he named Ashland, which Ashland the town and our Ashland University is named after Henry Clay's estate there in Ashland, Kentucky. So Henry Clay owned slaves and yet always hated the principle of slavery. Hmm. Right? He always thought slavery was wrong, that it was unjust and immoral, and it couldn't be defended. The only defense for slavery for Clay was, it's in my self-interest. It's more convenient for me to have slaves than not to have them, but that doesn't make it right. And I hate it. Um, we should try to rid ourselves of it, but in the meantime, I just can't help myself. I would be poor, that, poor without them. And so I'm going to continue to own slaves and yet work for its its abolition. So, for example, he was, um, you know, a, a member of the um, American Colonization Society, and it w was its president at the time of his death in 1852, which sought to find a, a solution to, to the slavery problem. He supported gradual emancipation efforts uh, in the United States. Um, the Compromise of 1820 and then later 1850 will be seen as great victories for the anti-slavery movement, both of which owe, right, we owe, we owe Henry Clay mm. for those compromises. So a complex, personally very um, conflicted yeah. relationship yeah, with slavery. Yeah, complicated guy. Yeah. But uh, on principle, you're saying um, opposed to slavery, but not perhaps as, as adamantly opposed as, say, Daniel Webster. Right, Daniel Webster, who doesn't, yeah, who never owns slaves. Right. Yeah. Do you know any students with an interest in American history, politics, economics, and literature? Do they enjoy being academically challenged and the thrill of engaging with different ideas and viewpoints? Hi, I'm Sabrina Maristella, Student Programs Coordinator here at the Ashbrook Center. The Ashbrook Academy is a series of summer courses for rising high school juniors and seniors. Held in person at Ashland University, the Academy immerses you in the American story like you've never been before. Since 2015, our approach has taken history out of textbooks and into students' lives with historical documents and conversations about those documents. If you are a rising high school junior or senior, or if you know someone who is, we invite you to learn more about our courses and apply today at ashbrookacademy.org. That the Missouri Compromise seems to save the Union. Hmm. However, as Thomas Jefferson said in a very famous letter, it now draws a line across America. Right. And begins to divide the country, not just morally on the issue of slavery, but politically as well. Lines are drawn now. The next crisis they face comes about 10 years later. Mm -hmm. What happens around 1830? Yeah. Uh, around 1830, you have the nullification crisis. Okay, that's a big fancy word. What's it mean? Right, right. And actually, it goes by many names. The Carolina Doctrine, um, interposition, which is the state interposition, which is how Calhoun preferred to call it. That's even fancier. That's even fancier. It goes by another name as well, secession. Wow. At principle, it's the same thing. Um, so in the late 1820s, early 1830s, um, over a debate that originates regarding um, the sale of public lands and a, a new a new tariff for the United States, um, South Carolina 
will threaten once again. It's always South Carolina, funny enough. Hmm. South Carolina will threaten to secede after Congress passes a new uh, protective tariff, which the South Carolinians believed favored the North, was to the disadvantage of the South, threatened the rights and liberties of their people. And South Carolina believed that a state had the right to nullify or to make void any federal law that they believed threatened the rights of their people. Calhoun is at the head of this movement. Whoa, wait a minute. This is John C. Calhoun, mm -hmm. who started off as a war hawk in the War of 1812 in favor of the American nation against Britain, mm -hmm. who supports the Compromise of 1820 because yeah. it keeps the nation together, yeah. who you described as a nationalist. Mm -hmm. Now he's on the forefront of leading the charge for the idea that a state could nullify a law of the Union? That's right. What changed? Yeah. Uh, Andrew Jackson. That's what changed. So uh, we mentioned earlier they disagreed about a lot, didn't agree on, on much at all. One thing all three of the members of the Great Triumvirate could agree on, they all despised Andy Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> and Andrew Jackson is president right now. Andrew Jackson is president right now, and Calhoun is his vice president. Wow. And Calhoun is his vice president. Jackson pushes forward this bill, supports it 100%. Uh, Calhoun comes out against it and actually resigns his post as vice president, returns to the Senate, returns to the Senate to fight against it. Wow. And urges South Carolina, his fellow South Carolinians, right, to oppose this new, this new measure coming out of the federal government, which he thought not just threatened the rights of the South Carolinian people, but that... Um, was based on a fundamental misunderstanding of the origin and nature of the Union itself. Uh, Calhoun sort of turns his back on that early nationalist streak that he had early in his life to prefer this state's rights doctrine, to protect the rights of the people, especially, Calhoun would say, the right to own other human beings. So he, he becomes uh, a supporter of the idea that the country is really a compact of states. Right. It's a compact of states that was, the union was created by the states, and that the purpose of the union is to protect the rights of the states. That's very different than how folks like Clay and Webster understand yeah the what's union. their different view of the union their view of the union this is this is you know you got where you got to read webster's famous second reply to to hayne in the senate regarding these debates on the nullification crisis webster says look it's the union is not a compact between the states for the good of the individual states the union is is an agreement among the people of the united states for the good of the whole for all the people hmm. union and liberty now and forever one and indissoluble Webster says. That is not John C. Calhoun. Where's Henry Clay stand on this? Yeah. Uh, Henry Clay is definitely with Webster on this point, right? After the, the presidency of Andy Jackson, which ends up splitting the Democratic Republicans, you have, right, Calhoun, right, taking the side of the Democrats. You have uh, Webster and Clay taking the lead in forming a new party, the Whig Party, ah. an anti-slavery party. Um, and pro-national power. And pro-national power, yes. That, so we have this new party formation after the crisis of 1830. The crisis is resolved how, by the way? 
how, how in the end is, is the situation dealt with? Well, uh, Jackson had originally thought he could resolve it by arresting John C. Calhoun. <laughs> his <laughs> former <laughs> vice president? He said, right, <laughs> a South Carolina, and Jackson, to his credit, right, a Southerner from Tennessee says, right, a fierce nationalist against the state's rights doctrine, doesn't believe in secession, right, threatens, you know, if I have to march down to South Carolina to prevent them from seceding, the first guy I'm going to arrest is John C. Calhoun. <laughs> that story may be apocryphal, but but there's 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 a grain of truth to it. But it's, it's resolved through compromise. Again, sort of the compromise attitude that we saw okay. in 1820. What's the compromise they reached? The compromise is Jackson backs off a bit on the tariff. Not whether or not the national government has the power to to issue such a, a tariff, but just the amount, right, what the tariff was for. So he backs down on, right, the not whether or not it could be issued, but, right, how high the tariff would be. Yeah. And that's enough to convince South Carolina to back down, but South Carolina and Calhoun never backed down on the principle that they had asserted, that a state had the, a right to nullify a federal law that they thought violated the rights of their people, and in the ultimate regard, a state could secede and leave the Union. So the issue is resolved politically, but the, the philosophically, morally, on principle, the issue is not resolved. Exactly. After 1830, we know that the United States starts to expand westward rapidly. Mm -hmm. We start to gain territory, in particular, the, the Mexican War opens up territory uh, in the southwest. So the 1840s, as the country spreads west, the slavery issue is not resolved. It continues to fester. It continues to grow in, in strength and division between north and south. And the question will be, is the West going to be slave or free? That issue has, grows throughout the course of the 1840s. The last crisis the Great Triumvirate faces together, really, is the crisis over this slavery question in 1850. Help our listeners understand what that crisis is. Right. So the compromise of, of 1850. So the, the problem is, uh, again, the status of slavery in the territories. As a result of the war with Mexico, the United States had again now assumed a greater, right, more territory. A lot of territories. A lot of territory. States like uh, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, right. California, that whole area. Right. What are we going to do with all of that? What's going to be especially the status of slavery in those territories? Again, the northern states pushing for right anti-slavery measures. The southern states saying, no, slavery is a right and therefore, we must protect it in, the, the, in these new territories. So the, the question is, what, what do we do? Mm -hmm. And again, secession is threatened. Again, civil war is on the lips of many, north and south. North and south. And it looks like the Union may actually break up this time. That we will be facing a dissolution of the Union in 1850. Henry Clay comes out of retirement um, comes back into the Senate hmm. to lead uh, alongside a new freshman senator from Illinois, Stephen Douglas. Clay and Douglas worked together um, on the, the Compromise of 1850, Clay taking the lead, and here's, here's, here's how they resolve it. So it's a series of measures. It's not just one bill, but it's a, it's a series of, of resolutions. So California will come in as a free state. Okay. We will permanently settle the boundaries of Texas which is already right part of the Union, already a state, but in a, in a pro-slavery state. 
uh, but will settle the boundaries of Texas and the territories of Utah and New Mexico. We won't say anything about slavery hmm. in those territories. So they can have slavery or not. While at the same time, um, the slave trade, the internal slave trade in Washington, D.C., but not slavery itself, will be abolished. And the South will also get a, a stricter fugitive slave law on the books um, right at the federal level. Through those series of measures and compromises and back and forth and horse trading, really the work of right the legislature, the Congress, these three statesmen, this great triumvirate, um, we avoid disaster once again. So I take it by your remark then that Webster supports the Compromise of 1850. Webster does. And Calhoun supports it. Calhoun does not. Oh. Calhoun does not. Calhoun actually, he dies that same year in 1850. Um, and he's so sick and frail, he actually can't get up and speak anymore. But he has his speeches that he gives to an aide or somebody else there present in the Senate to read to read for him. Calhoun is vehemently against uh, the Compromise Why of does he oppose it? Because it limits slavery. It doesn't, it is not put forward on the basis that slavery is a positive good, as Clay right, had asserted since the 1820s and 1830s. So Calhoun has the view that slavery is a positive good. It should be embraced, mm. and where it exists, it should be protected, and it should flourish, and in new territories, it should go there because it's a good thing. Right. Webster's position on slavery is? That it is immoral, unjust, it's a violation of human nature, it's a lamentable evil, it's a necessary evil that we have to make certain compromises with in order to keep the union together, but without compromising on that principle that slavery is wrong and ought to be restricted. Okay, so on one hand you have the positive good argument right. of John C. Calhoun. I can see the triumvirate beginning to really split here. It's a positive good Webster says, no, it's not. It's an evil mm -hmm. that we might have to tolerate for now, but we always want to work to get rid of. Mm -hmm. Where's Henry Clay stand in that by the time we get to 1850? Yeah, Clay will, right, this is his last Herculean effort, right? He dies in, in 1852. Uh, thank God he stepped forward in, in 1850 when he did. So his position on slavery, again, he's still the owner of slaves, but he's with Daniel Webster on this, right, that slavery ought to be restricted and only tolerated right in those places where it's absolutely necessary for us to tolerate it in order to keep the union together. But never admitting the principle that Calhoun puts forward that slavery is a positive good, that it's a right because um, Clay and Webster, right, for their whole lives believed in those principles of the Declaration of natural liberty and natural equality for all men. Calhoun had turned his back on those principles. Um, and by 1850, thank God they were able to, to work out a compromise because if the Union had actually split in, in 1850, I, th I don't like dealing a lot in these what-if questions, but if... But what if it had? If Civil War had come in 1850, it's a lot more likely that the South would have won. And that slavery would have been a perpetual institution exactly. in America. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, the industrial capacity of the North in 1850 was nothing like it was in 1860, which was absolutely necessary for the Union to win the war in the 1860s. But more importantly, um, Clay being or stepping forth to save the Union once again in 1850 
it was only a stopgap measure, right? It's temporary. We know civil war will come 10 years later. But because of what Clay did in the Compromise of 1850, that gave the nation 10 more years to find Abraham Lincoln, hmm. who would be absolutely necessary, absolutely essential for securing a Northern victory, a Union victory in the Civil War. You get Civil War in 1850, you don't have Abraham Lincoln, you probably get a Southern victory. Lincoln called Clay his beau ideal of a statesman. That's right. That means he thought of Clay as a great model to emulate in his own public career. And you just said something really amazing. Without a Henry Clay and the Compromise of 1850, the country couldn't have found mm. Abraham Lincoln. Mm. But Lincoln says his inspiration is Henry Clay. What does Lincoln mean when he calls Henry Clay, one of the members of this great triumvirate, a statesman? Yeah. I think what, what Lincoln means when he says that, you know, my beau ideal of a statesman is, is Henry Clay, that Clay had those particular virtues of statesmanship. That is, uh, Lincoln mentions his, his will, his eloquence, his prudence, but also his sense of, of justice, and his, his political courage to stand up for America's founding principles. Mm. Uh, never um, giving up on the hope in the American cause. That hope and progress could be made towards the fuller realization of our, of our founding principles as encapsulated in the, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Um, Lincoln says at the end of that, that eulogy of Clay, um, he says, if I could read a couple of lines here, this is yeah, the please. very end of his speech. Please. He's giving a speech, a eulogy of Henry Clay upon Clay's death. That's right. But Henry Clay is dead. His long and eventful life is closed. Our country is prosperous and powerful. But could it, could it have been quite all it has been and is and is to be without Henry Clay? Such a man the times have demanded, and such in the providence of God was given us. But he is gone. Let us, deserve, let us strive to deserve, as far as mortals may, the continued care of divine providence, trusting that in future national emergencies he will not fail to provide us the instruments of safety and security. God has provided the nation with the statesmanship of Henry Clay, Let's hope and pray that he, the divine, continues to do so. Of course, this is coming out of the mouth of Abraham Lincoln in, in 1852. Um, whether or not Lincoln was aware of the role he would play in the mm. American experiment for self-government, well, we can't say. But it's certainly true that Lincoln was right. Yeah. God did continue to provide the country with instruments of our safety and security. It almost sounds prophetic. Exactly. Looking at the great triumvirate, these three... Um, very important public figures. What's the legacy of them? Yeah. What do we learn about America by studying these three men? Mm -hmm. uh, I think that these men helped to uh, pass on the, the history of the, the American Revolution and the, uh, the American mind to the next generation. So Daniel Webster, he gives all of these speeches on important, significant American events. I think I mentioned 
uh, right? The, the Pilgrims, Bunker Hill. He also has a, a eulogy on Jefferson and Adams after they passed away. His second reply to Hain. I learned this from Webster's biographer, Robert Ramini. I didn't know this, but um, during the 19th century and even into the 20th century, um, textbooks weren't as popular in classrooms back then as they are now. Instead of textbooks, what American students learned to learn the history of America, they read these great speeches by Daniel Webster talking about the significance and the importance of the American experiment. Wow, what a great idea. That's how, that's <laughs> how American students learned about their country, was right, studying these great speeches of, of Daniel Webster. And so his legacy is that he taught Americans about America. He taught Americans about themselves. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. What about the legacy of Henry Clay? Look, yeah. Henry Clay, as you say, comes to save the Union. He is Lincoln's beau ideal of a statesman. Mm. But the Civil War does come yeah. 10 years yeah. later. Yeah. Does that tarnish his legacy? What about the legacy of Henry Clay? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Because, I mean, Lincoln even himself talks about the difficulties, yes, of founding a nation, but also the difficulties of maintaining a nation of free men, of perpetuating a nation of free men. He has a speech called The Perpetuation of Our Political Institutions. The significance of the Great Triumvirate, particularly Henry Clay, is the work that they, in that second generation of, of Americans, did to perpetuate the regime, to maintain the regime. Um, Civil War comes in 1860-1861. The Great Triumvirate is dead and gone. 10 years by that point. They held the union together, right, through many, many crises that we've, we've already talked about and others that we, we haven't had the time to talk about. Um, that is no small, that is no small thing, right? They, they helped to keep the union together um, during their time here on earth. How could we ask for more? If listeners want to know more about the Great Triumvirate, what books do you think they ought to read? What speeches? What's a great way to get to know these three fascinating characters in American history? As, as far as secondary resources, I mentioned Robert Ramini. He has a, a great biography on Daniel Webster, another one on Henry Clay. Uh, there's another book I like by Merrill Peterson on the Great Triumvirate. H.W. Uh, Brands has a book on the Great Triumvirate called The uh, Heirs of the Founders. Hmm. Uh, and then I would also recommend right, reading, the, reading their speeches and writings for yourself. I mean, this is Ashbrook after all. That's right. Yeah, read the primary documents. Uh, read, read Webster's speeches. Read Clay's speeches. In fact, you know, uh, you know, Clay gave one speech that was, we were told it was so beautiful, so elegant, people were in so, awe, in, in so much awe of it that reporters present stopped taking notes and just listened and lived in the moment. It was Clay's famous lost speech. So you may not be able to read that one, but, you know, huh. read Clay's other speeches. Uh, read, even, even read Calhoun's speeches. Calhoun, although, right, he, um, you know, puts forward a very different notion of America and the Union than, than Clay and Webster. Um, Calhoun is a serious mind. He's to be taken seriously. He may put forward ideas that we find abhorrent, but these were ideas that Lincoln had to combat with, that Lincoln had to argue against, right? If you want to really know your enemy, you've got to study him, right? And you, you can only do that by reading these, these speeches and, and writings. So I'd, I'd encourage all students, all teachers, all citizens to go back to the original primary documents 
and discover for themselves that true history of America. And let me recommend one last time your wonderful volume, your Ashbrook Core Documents volume, Causes of the Civil War, War, where no doubt we can find some of these resources. Speeches from all three members of the Great Triumvirate are, are in that volume. That's right. Jason, thank you so much for your work on that volume and for joining us today to give us a, a fascinating look at the lives of three towering Americans and their legacy today. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice. Subscribe for more at ashbrook.org slash AmericanIdeaPod and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at AmIdeaPodcast. From the SRAM Library in Ashland, Ohio, I'm Jeff Sickick.